0: Welcome to the Ghostly Gallery podcast, a place where we explore the world of horror in film, television, books, and popular culture. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the program. My name is Bruce Markison, and as always, I'm joined by producer and co-host Tracy Asteria. Tracy, as always, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, Bruce. How are you this evening?
0: Well, we're hanging in there. We've um, we've got a lot to talk about in this week's episode, and in this week's show, we're primarily going to be discussing a number of films from fifty years ago. Were you around fifty years ago, Tracy? I know I was. I know I'm older. Than <laughs> you. Were you around in 1974?
1: Just barely.
0: <laughs> <laughs> barely. Okay. So it's the fiftieth anniversary of 1974, and we're going to actually talk about three films that came out that year. Uh, We're going to talk about the film Dracula, starring Jack Palance, directed by the great Dan Curtis. That came out early February of 1974. We're also going to discuss two other films that came out that year. Sugar Hill, a zombie film, crazy film, to be honest, but entertaining, (laughs) at least in my mind. That also came out in February of 74. And then we're going to talk about a movie that we have discussed in the past. We had uh, the writer, author Donna Marie Novak on, talking about some of her favorite made-for-television horror films for the 1970s and one of those movies, Bad Ronald, which I have finally seen. So we're we're going to discuss all three movies and each of us will give us give some thoughts on exactly what we felt in watching them. Before we get to that though, we wanted to discuss really a far more serious and somber topic at the start of the show. Just a few days ago, we learned about the passing of a real friend to this Ghostly Gallery podcast, the great David Scall, preeminent author, historian, expert on horror films and literature. According to the reports that we've been seeing, he died on January 1st as a result of injuries suffered in a car accident. Obviously, a terrible tragedy uh, becomes even more I guess infuriating when we learn that his death came at the hands of a drunk driver. Obviously, tough news. David was 71 years of age. I first became aware of David's work back in the late 1990s. I bought a book called V is for Vampire, which is all about vampire lore and has definitions associated with vampire lore. Really fun book, and that was the first time I'd ever heard of David. It wasn't his first book, but it was the first book I read from him. And I soon learned that, well, he had written some other books before that, and he would write many books after that. His list of titles included The Monster Show, Hollywood Gothic, A Cultural History of Halloween, and Something in the Blood, the definitive, very comprehensive biography of Dracula author, Bram Stoker. And there were many others, too. We could spend the next several minutes talking about all of the books and articles and papers that he contributed to. And they were all terrific, insightful, and really taught us a lot about the genre of horror. Well, several years ago, this was, I think, around 2012, I had a chance to meet David in person at the Scarecon convention that Used to take place in upstate New York, not that far from where I live here in Cooperstown. And uh, he spoke on a wasn't a panel. He was actually the only speaker. And he, of course, was able to carry it by himself very well. He spoke about the impact of the groundbreaking year of 1931 when Dracula came out, Frankenstein came out toward the end of the year, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I was really captivated by his speaking style and his insights uh, into horror. He said things that I'd never re- really thought about. And then later visits to Scaracon. I ended up going to that event pretty much every year while it existed. And during one of the follow-up visits, I had a fortunate opportunity to interview him as part of a convention panel. And that was a real thrill. And more than anything else, really, hearing David speak with such passion and love about horror is what motivated me to become a horror writer, albeit on a far lesser scale, something I do on the side. But he was really the guy that prompted me to want to sort of get in on this and, and do it at a, at a lower level and talk about growing up with horror and talk about my favorite films and favorite actors and then after you know hearing david talk a few times uh, during a more recent scarecon by that point i had decided i wanted to write a book about horror films that came out from the early 1930s to the early 1970s so i came up with this idea to do a book hosted horror on television and i thought well what better person to talk to than david to do a lengthy interview and get his thoughts on as, as many of these films as possible. So keep in mind, this is in the middle of a pretty busy horror convention. He's at his booth. He's got um, people coming uh, you know, intermittently. It was kind of early in the day. I thought that was a better time to try to get him before the big crowds mm-hmm. came. But um, he was very happy to do a lengthy interview. It must have been at least 15, maybe 20 minutes. And I was really grateful that he would do that in the middle of, you know, this busy horror convention where he's obviously trying to sell books and, and sign books uh, for the, the visitors there. And he provided so many great insights and stories about movies and horror hosts. And I think he, he just made the book so much better than it would have been without him. I quoted him left and right throughout the book. And I really, I learned so much from him, not only from that interview, but hearing him on these other panels and these other talks that I really regarded him as a mentor. And uh, he probably didn't realize that because he was a guy that had an influence on so many people. I'm sure there were many of other, many other horror fans and writers that looked at him as a mentor too. But I really, uh, I really felt. That he was kind of that guy for me, not that he was preaching, uh, not that he was trying to impress me with his knowledge, which, I mean, he already did. And he I knew a lot more than I did, but I, I just wanted to learn as much as I could. And, and I wanted to try to become a better writer. And, um, you know, I think if you hang around people like that, it, it can't help but make you improve in what in what you do as, as a writer. I'm so grateful to David for his insights, his stories, and and really just for his willingness to help. And additionally, I'm I'm thankful, as I know you are, that he was able to join our podcast last October. He did uh, really a great preview of Halloween and its history. Uh, And it was just, it was a wonderful hour that we had with him. I'm also still struggling with the realization that You know, we'll never have that chance to talk again. And I remember, and you might remember, too, after we we turned the microphones off and wrapped up the show, you know, we had a little bit of an exchange with him afterward and we thanked him for being on. And I remember him saying something like, um, well, I, I hope you'll have us on again. I hope you'll have me on again. That's right. And I thought, you know, wow, that was. That would be great. I'd love to have you on, you know, many times. And I was thinking that, you know, we might have him on, you know, two, three times a year, maybe even more Mm -hmm. if he he was up to it. And uh, it's obviously tough now knowing that that's not going to happen. One of the other things that's a bit of a struggle is um, knowing that he had more in him. He was in his early 70s, but I don't sense that he had any intention of retiring. Uh, I think he had... More books and projects in him. I think he was a guy that would have would have written and traveled for as long as his health would have permitted, and his, his health seemed to be pretty good. Um, I know you had just the one chance to talk to him. Um, any any thoughts that you might have, Tracy, on uh, on David and and that that opportunity we had back in October?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, although. I only had that brief interaction for just a little over an hour. David was a wealth of knowledge, just is superb. And to talk about his projects and just his inspirations from how he got to be where he wanted to be in his life and just his, his love of horror and the different traveling places that he wanted to go to with his family. And you could just, hear in his voice the passion that he had for what he did and you know it it's it's a tragic thing to learn of this and it's it's quite sad it's it's sad for all of his friends and his family and the people that he had such a great influence on
0: well there's no doubt tracy he is going to be missed by so many within the horror community Uh, i think he really helped us better appreciate horror films, and literature. He increased our enjoyment with both his written and his spoken Mm -hmm. word. Let's not forget about all the uh, DVD commentaries that he did. And during our interview back in October, he talked about the DVD that he did for uh, the Todd Browning uh, films, uh, including Freaks and some of those other great films that came out in the 1920s and 1930s. And uh, he was very passionate about that, but he, he could speak and write both so beautifully, so well. While we'll miss him greatly, I guess we can console ourselves a little bit, a little bit, in knowing that we have this great body of work that he has left behind. All these books, these articles, uh, these recordings. Um, thank you, David, for all that you did for the community of horror. It's um It's something that we're never going to forget. We're going to continue with this edition of the Ghostly Gallery podcast in just a moment. Stay with us. We continue on the Ghostly Gallery podcast, and in this week's episode, we're putting the focus on horror films that came out 50 years ago, 1974, and I guess it's somewhat appropriate given the, uh, the passing of David Skull, who was a great lover of Dracula and all the culture that went along with that, of course, the original film with Bella Lugosi, but some of the sequels and some of the follow-ups as well. I guess it's appropriate that we talk about one of the Dracula films from 1974. And this was a film that starred Jack Palance. Now, of course, we're very familiar with Lugosi and Christopher Lee, and in more recent times, Gary Oldman and the interpretations that they did of Dracula. Today, though, we're going to talk about the Jack Palance film. It was a made-for-TV movie. Jack Palance, by this point, 1974, was a very well-established actor, somebody known for his villainous roles. So the movie is known either simply as Dracula or Bram Stoker's Dracula. Dracula was supposed to air in October of 1973. But there was breaking news that night of Spiro Agnew's resignation as American vice president. So the network decided to change course. They preempted the film that night, and they delayed it on network television until February 8th of 1974. So it was supposed to come out in 73, but because of the Agnew News, which was a major, major story, it was delayed in uh, until 1974. For the most part, it's a pretty faithful adaptation of Bram Stoker's original novel from 1897. Pallant stars as the Count he is seen living in Hungary, where he has summoned Jonathan Harker, a man from England, to come there and complete a real estate transaction. Dracula wants to purchase a house in England, wants to make the move there. And during his meeting with Harker, he sees a picture of Harker's friend, Lucy who bears this incredible resemblance to Dracula's long-dead wife. Well, a little bit later on, uh, Dracula's servant ends up attacking Mr. Harker. His brides also end up attacking him as well. And we think it's probably through that attack that he becomes a vampire. And then while all this is going on, shortly thereafter, the Count makes his move to England. And he leaves Harker behind with his brides. And uh, soon after, the Count begins to set his sights on Lucy, Lucy Westernra. After Dracula's ship lands at Whitby, Dracula establishes his new residence at Carfax Abbey. And he almost immediately starts to target Lucy. She becomes ill with blood loss for obvious reasons. Lucy's fiancé, Arthur Holmwood, turns to the knowledgeable Abraham Van Helsing, who is an expert on vampires, seeing if he can help out with the situation. Now, on the surface, Palance might have seemed like an odd choice to play Dracula. At the time, he's already 54 years old. He did not possess the stereotypical facial features or the lean body type often associated with this famous vampire. But he's also an actor with a well-earned reputation for playing dastardly types, and none more dastardly than Dracula himself. Palance plays the character as a snarling, growling, bellowing creature with brute strength. Uh, Palance's Dracula is partly fueled by wanting to rekindle this long-lost love, again because Lucy looks like the spitting image of his dead wife. Um, But he also gives us a Dracula that um, is pretty thoroughly evil and motivated uh, for blood, as most vampires would be. Uh, He lacks any social graces or civility. Uh, And um, it's interesting to note that this whole story of the resemblance of Lucy to Dracula's late wife, this was an angle that was not featured at all in Bram Stoker's novel. A lot of people say that it was, but it's not. It was not mentioned at all. This is something that director Dan Curtis and his great screenwriter, the legendary Richard Matheson, came up with. They added it to the story in the 1974 version of Dracula. So Dracula is still motivated by his thirst for blood, but the romantic angle here is definitely something different from the original novel. So, That's kind of what's going on in the film. Those are some of my initial comments. Tracy, Mm -hmm. let's hear some of your thoughts (laughs) on Dracula from 1974 with Jack Palance.
1: So right off the bat, I had no idea, Bruce, that this was a made-for-TV movie. No idea at all. I thought it was just like a lower-budgeted theatrical release, perhaps, And I also didn't realize that it was a Dan Curtis production. I had no idea just until I was talking to you about this. But, you know, after watching it this weekend, I gained a better appreciation for this movie. And it wasn't just like another Dracula movie to me. Um, I've always really liked Jack Palance. And... You know, the first exposure I've had with Jack Palance was years ago when I was in high school. I watched a movie called Shane, and that was the first time I ever saw him. And, you know, what a strong stage presence that that man had, both physical and emotional. And he's just an expert at playing, like, that greedy character. And when it was called for in this role of Dracula no exception. Like, hands down, he was pretty darn awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, those were my initial thoughts of this. So yeah. it, it really held my attention for sure.
0: You know, we think of him in, in more recent years. It's not that recent. It's late 80s <laughs> when he did City Slickers and uh, mm-hmm. he won an Academy Award for that as a supporting actor. Um, I remember first hearing, you know, Jack Palance's Dracula that just doesn't fit, that doesn't seem right. Even though he's great at playing the villain, he just doesn't have the look. But then when you watch this movie, Tracy, he's surprisingly athletic. Mm-hmm. And even at six foot four inches, 200 pounds, he moves real easily. In one scene, he discovers that Lucy has been staked in the heart, in the crypt in which he's being kept And this spurs on an extreme temper tantrum. I mean, he's just bellowing and screaming. And, you know, at the hands of a less skilled actor, maybe it doesn't come across realistically, but with him, it did. Mm -hmm. And then in another scene, he does hand to hand combat with Van Helsing and Homewood. And he handles the fight scene really capably. He's, you know, especially for somebody who's in his mid 50s, that he's able to do this. And here's the really remarkable thing. He showed such aptitude for handling this role that he actually received several later offers to reprise the character in sequels. And he apparently was not interested. Now, he was a method actor. And according to Palance, he was so engrossed in playing such an evil character that kind of disturbed him. He felt like, I'm getting a little too close to this this character. I, I, I don't want to get that close to him. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons he apparently turned down uh, future roles. So this was his sole appearance as the Count, um, but he certainly nailed it in, in just about every way. One thing we should mention, his lone turn as Dracula was quite influential. There's a comic book, The Tomb of Dracula, that actually based its visual imagery of the vampire on Palance's physical appearance in the
1: movie. Oh, interesting. Yeah.
0: So if you look at that comic, especially from the 1970s, yeah, it looks a lot like Jack Palance. Now, Palance is great here, but there are also some other really good contributions. The character of Van Helsing is played perfectly by veteran British actor Nigel Davenport. And I should mention that He looks an awful lot like one of today's actors, Uh, Ted Levine from Monk, played the uh, captain. Um, I kept seeing Nigel Davenport and I I kept, you know, waiting for him to start talking like Ted Levine because I just thought (laughs) they were uh, spitting images of one another. Uh, That aside, though, Davenport plays the part of Van Helsing just about perfectly. Confidence, toughness, bravado. Um, He really makes a a great second lead in the movie. Now, you kind of hinted at this when you said going in, you didn't expect a lot from the film in terms Mm -hmm. of budget. You found out it was made for TV movie. And maybe some critics will deride this version of Dracula for that. Um, But it, to me, looks like a theater presentation. It's another example of the very fine and quite underrated work of director Dan Curtis. Curtis, of course, who we've talked about on past shows, best known for his creation of Dark Shadows and later direction of films like Trilogy of Terror and Burnt Offerings. Mm -hmm. And as with many of his movies, Curtis here is able to create a stylish presentation. It has beautifully filmed outdoor shots and lavish period interiors as well. One of Curtis's strengths was his ability to create mood and atmosphere, supplemented by a very good musical score from his friend, uh, Bob Cobert. Bob Cobert did the music on Dark Shadows, uh, Trilogy of Terror, many of Curtis's films. Um, And certainly we have that proper mood, we have that atmosphere, uh, we have the appropriate amount of creepiness, all of that is here in this uh, version of Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's really a fine film, one that has never received the publicity of the Lugosi and Lee movies or the Frank Langella film from 1979 or the Francis Ford Coppola version that came out in 1992. That's the one with Gary Oldman. And that's actually a movie that you can kind of tell was heavily influenced by Dan Curtis's effort from 1974. I think it really deserves recognition as one of the better Dracula adaptations of the last 50 years. Uh, I give it three and a half stars, three and a half stars for 1974 uh, version of Dracula. What do you think? How how would you rate this one?
1: You know, I thought it was a really great movie. Um, it, I, I would have loved to have seen Jack Palance do another version of Dracula if he would have been up for it. Um, you know, I just... I'm going to give it a three and a half stars as well. I just, I think it was really good. It was a totally different spin from the regular type Dracula. And, you know, I would really recommend that people watch it if they haven't had that opportunity yet. And just kind of while I was doing a bit of research, something that I had no idea. One of Dracula's wives was played by Sarah Douglas. I had no idea. I didn't even really recognize her. So, I mean... There was a lot of great casting in that movie as well that I think people would you know it would be a benefit for them to to watch this film if they haven't
0: tell people what Sarah Douglas is famous for,
1: oh so she's been in so many things, but her most known well known role is in Superman yeah. so she she played um Ur- Ursa I believe, yeah, I think it was Ursa um And she's been on so many other different shows as well. So just, you know, phenomenal.
0: Was that the second Superman?
1: I think she was in Superman 1 and Superman 2,
0: I want to say.
1: It was so long ago. I can't remember if she was in all three. But I know she was in two of them for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I remember she's one of the three characters that come from Superman's planet. That's
1: and right. And they're basically
0: trying to take over the world. And she's sort of second in command.
1: That's and right. The third,
0: the third guy is a real brute who doesn't have much intelligence. <laughs> doesn't say many words. Um, but she and Terrence Stamp, who plays the leader of the group,
1: right. they're really
0: kind of the focal points of the villains. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Great presentation. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So that's our thoughts on Dracula with Jack Palance. Tracy gives it three and a half. I give it three and a half stars as well. All right. Let's talk about another interesting horror film that also came to us in February of 1974. It's very different from Dracula. It's called (laughs) Sugar Hill. So it premiered in American theaters right around the same time that Palance's Dracula appeared on network television. And it's an example of the black exploitation genre, which was really becoming prominent in the early 1970s. That genre mixes with horror. Uh, Sugar Hill came out two years after Blackula, which became the first of the black exploitation horror movies. And for those who aren't real familiar with black exploitation, this was kind of a subgenre of movies that came out. It started, I want to say, early 70s, primarily black casts. Often the black characters are the protagonists, white characters are the villains. Uh, and a lot of people have mixed feelings on black exploitation. Um, the, the good thing is that it gave black actors an opportunity to star in these movies because many of the times, most of the cast, or probably in some cases, all of the cast, uh, were African American. But then on the negative side, sometimes these movies, they were cheaply made. They promoted some racial stereotypes. They might have put the black characters in in a more positive or heroic role, but sometimes they did so still with extreme uh, stereotypes. Mm-hmm. So there is that kind of racist element to them. So there's a mixed feeling about black exploitation. Some of the movies, I think, very artfully done. Others, maybe not as much. I think Sugar Hill is probably somewhere in between. Now, the plot of this movie is really outrageous, to put it mildly. Sugar Hill is the name of the lead character. More specifically, her real name is Diana Hill, but she's been given this nickname. She's a photographer living in Texas who seeks revenge against local gangsters for murdering her boyfriend. She then approaches a voodoo queen who in turn summons the Lord of the Dead, Baron Somdi, for his help. And uh, he is played in in really an over-the-top fashion, um, (laughs) to say the least. Many of the characters are in this movie. In exchange for Hill's soul, Baron Somdi unleashes an army of zombies to take out the gangsters one by one. Interesting thing about the movie, in creating the look for the zombies, director Paul Maslansky really took kind of a different approach, at least from other directors of that time. Rather than show them as decaying human corpses the way that George Romero did just a few years earlier in Night of the Living Dead, Maslansky presents the zombies as physically intact creatures, albeit with pale complexions. And a lot of times they're filled with cobwebs, too, to kind of add to the effect. Um, they act as if they're in a trance, but they have great physical strength, and they're not, they're not really decaying in front of us. As the film itself explains, these revenants are the preserved bodies of slaves who are brought to America from New Guinea. Uh, they're really more like the Living Dead style of Revenant that we saw in a film way back in the 1930s. That's White Zombie with Bell Lugosi. So here Maslansky decides to go against the recent trend that we saw with George Romero in Night of the Living Dead. And he gives us uh, kind of a throwback zombie. And I think really in this case, uh, the choice is pretty effective because these zombies are essentially Assassins. They have to be kind of alert, and they have to be able to move fairly quickly and be strong, and all of that is evident. So, I think it kind of works with the storyline. So, those are some initial thoughts on Sugar Hill. Let's get your opinion, Tracy. What did you think of the movie?
1: So, I have never heard of it until you you mentioned this movie. Um, I really needed to put myself in the frame of mind that this. This film is 50 years old and from the early 70s. So it was a much different time. So it kind of goes along the lines of like some of the language was like a little bit, you just, you had to remember it was a different time. So it was a little bit off putting until you kind of got into the swing of the whole movie. But once I got past that, it, it was fun. It was a fun storyline. you know, the ultimate revenge of Sugar Hill. Um, you know, I thought it was very interesting. The lead character, um, Sugar Hill, it, very strong lead, calm, cool, and calculating. And they never made her appear weak at all. Not once did I feel bad for her at all because, you know, she kicked butt and uh, mm-hmm. I kept rooting for her. as She took her revenge one by one.
0: Yeah. One of the things I thought that was kind of weird, Tracy, and the first time I watched this movie, and it was a little confusing, in every scene in which she is about to unleash the zombies who are going to kill one of the gangsters, Mm -hmm. she has a full afro. And then in all the other scenes, she has, I'm guessing it must have been a wig of some kind, Mm -hmm. lighter colored hair, straightened hair, and she really looks completely different. And obviously this was done intentionally by mm-hmm. the director, Miss Lansky, but it really gave us two different looks when she's she's going into killer mode. Mm-hmm. She's got the the large Afro, which was very common for the time period. And then in the other scenes where she's just talking to people and and not on the verge of, you know, killing someone, <laughs> uh, she has the the far different hairdo. I, it That was kind of. It's kind of weird. Um, I like I said, the first time I saw it, I'm like, wait a minute, is this two different women, two different characters? And I realized, no, exactly. it's the same one. <laughs> so yeah, it was that, that was kind of a strange decision, didn't you think?
1: Yeah, I thought it was a little bit different. You know, it took me like, you know, a few minutes to kind of put those pieces together. But I, I don't know if it was done for the purpose of kind of like, you have like the normal character version, and then you have like ramped up you know, vengeful killer voodoo version. But I thought it was really interesting. And the point you made about the zombies too, while well, it's on my mind, that, that that was a pretty interesting choice. Definitely when you think zombies, that's not what I think of at all. Yeah. Um, the cool little silver colors that they put over the the zombie's eyes, I thought that was a great choice to kind of differentiate them from your typical zombie. Um and the lead zombie, like the voodoo guy, um, Baron Zombie, played by Don Pedro Cali. I think that's how you say his name. Um, yep. Man, he was so comical and just like over the top. Um, yeah. Just, I thought that was just every time I saw him come onto the screen, I just kind of like, yep, yeah, okay, something bad is really going to go down. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, when he yeah. first meets sugar hill and he speaks there's kind of this echo to his voice like he's speaking right. over a sound system of some sort and um you could tell he really relished playing this this character i mean he he is completely over the top yes and, uh, it does <laughs> it does bring some comment i don't know if this was intentional i don't know if this is what the director wanted but it's certainly what Don Pedro Collie delivered. We should mm-hmm. mention the name of the lead actress who played Sugar Hill. Her name is Markie Bay. And as you mentioned, she really gives this character a determined feel. Uh, she's willing to go head to head with this evil Morgan, the leader of the murderous gang. And he's played by veteran actor Robert Quarry, who was the same guy who played Count Yorga in the two vampire movies from the early 70s. Uh, I'm a big fan of Corey's work. I think he was a really, really good character actor. And when given a chance to play the lead role in Count Yorga, he really delivered uh, an effective vampire. Uh, I thought thought he was great in those movies, and I thought he was effective here. You know, he plays this really oily character, this, this Morgan, who is a complete racist, who is, you know... Wanting to murder Sugar Hill's husband because he owns a successful bar and restaurant and he's not willing to sell. So he figures, well, I'll just kill him and get him out of the way. Uh, I mean, he's just as evil as you could possibly uh, be. He plays it to an extreme, this unredeemable personality. And in some films that might not have worked, but I think given the rampant wildness and really the bizarre tenor of Sugar Hill, it does, it does fit. It works here. Yeah. Um, while the premise of Sugar Hill is mostly revenge, uh, it certainly does have a share of comedy. A lot of that comes to us from, as we mentioned, Baron Somdi, but also the gar- the gangsters. Other than Quarry playing Morgan, the other gangsters really are kind of goofy. Uh, they um, they're, they're reprehensible people, but they're not terrifying figures. They're they're sort of caricatures Mm -hmm. and there's just a lot of goofiness and clownishness to them. And I think that probably was done on purpose to try to give this uh, a little bit uh, of a humorous tenor. Um, As you mentioned, um, the one caution about the film, the language is very coarse. In particular, the use of one word that was once commonly said in movies like this but certainly not as much today. And it's a little bit jarring to hear that word. It was probably said at least five or six times during the film. And I guess it's just a product of a different era. Um, I don't think anybody likes hearing the word. And it, it, it is off-putting, I think, especially for, you know, the way we're more sensitive today. But again, as you say, this was 50 years ago. Yeah. All in all, in combining black exploitation with campy horror, I think Sugar Hill... Presents an unusual film formula that's surprisingly entertaining, even if it is a little dated in in terms of not only the course language, but, you know, some of the expressions of the time. I mean, they, I heard the word dynamite about three times at the beginning <laughs> of the movie. I, uh, I kept expecting um, Jimmy Walker to jump out <laughs> at some point. Uh, but all in all, it's a fun movie, one that's not to be taken too seriously. Um, it's not a great movie in a lot of ways, but it is fun. It is entertaining. I'll give it three stars for Sugar Hill.
1: Oh, my gosh, Bruce. Yeah, I had that same feeling when I heard the dynamite, I think, within the first three minutes of the movie. It was just used over and over. And, you know, the the gangsters definitely, you know, I totally agree that they were different, comical, kind of like bumbling type characters that you just wouldn't suspect for gangsters. Um, it was such a quirky movie. It was really quirky. Um, not one that I just would ever have thought to put on a watch list. Um, but all in all, the storyline was pretty cool. It really was. Um, And you get the chuckle every once in a while and the strong lead character. Um, I'd probably have to rate it at a two and a half stars, though. So not quite a three, but two and a half. Pretty good. I still recommend that people watch it, Um, you know, especially for the new generation of horror lovers coming up. So many old great movies, you know, you know, get get your feelers out there and test those waters.
0: Yeah. You know, I think Tracy the one thing that maybe it lacked was some kind of a twist at the end. You know, you see Sugar Hill with the aid of Baron Samedi one by one they're knocking off all these characters mm-hmm. and they're doing so almost too easily and somewhat predictably there there wasn't there wasn't really that um kind of double whammy that we saw at the end.
1: Oh, you know what, Bruce? Actually, you know what? There was one little freaky twist that I was just kind of like, Oh, that's okay. interesting. When she was supposed to sell her soul to Baron Sumdy, yeah. it wasn't her. She gave she gave away the girlfriend of the lead gangster, which I was like,
0: huh, that's pretty yeah.
1: interesting.
0: That's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I guess a small twist there.
1: Tiny little uh, one. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I, I just I would have liked if um maybe the Baron and Sugar Hill had faced a little bit more resistance in 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 doing their acts of revenge. Just to yes. make it a little <laughs> bit harder, you know. <laughs> but uh all in all, um entertaining. Uh it's only about an hour and a half. Um yeah. it's it's one of those films I think you need to see at least once as a horror fan. So Tracy gives it two and a half stars. I'm slightly better at uh, three stars (laughs) for uh, Sugar Hill from 1974. All right, Tracy, that leaves us with one more movie from 50 years ago to talk about. And it's a film we did discuss in our recent podcast with author Donna Marie Novak, Bad Ronald, also a made-for-TV movie like The Dracula with Jack Palance. This movie is very different from both Dracula and Sugar Hill. These three movies could not be any more disparate. This movie is about a boy, played by a young actor, Scott Jacoby, who accidentally kills a girl and is then hidden from the police by his rather ill-advised mother, played by veteran actress Kim Hunter. She is known for playing Zira in the Planet of the Apes films. So I bet a lot of horror fans, when they saw this movie, they said, oh, that's what Kim Kim Hunter looks like. Because they'd always seen her in Planet of the Apes with the makeup. She was one of the chimpanzee characters. So they got to see what Kim Hunter really was like. Now, most of the reviews that I've read of Bad Ronald have been favorable. People have called it a cult classic. And I mentioned to you while ago, I had never been able to watch this movie. I, I couldn't find it online, at least for free, and given my cheap nature, it <laughs> was something you know, I, I didn't want to pay for the movie. But thanks to you, Tracy, you sent me a link that contains a lot of old films, and I was finally able to watch this back in December, just before the holidays. So as mentioned, Scott Jacoby plays the lead, Ronald Willby. He's a teenage boy. He's picked on, mercilessly bullied by other people in his school. And after he's been kind of bullied at this informal pool party, he's walking home. He accidentally runs into a girl on a bike. And then she begins to make fun of him, too. So, I mean, wherever this kid turns, he just gets verbally abused. So he gets angry. He pushes her she falls accidentally hits her head on a rock causing her death this is um this is a manner of death that we would see in films for a lot of years i don't know how realistic that is um i mean it seems to me you'd really you really have to slam yourself into a rock to just die right away i mean it, i think so it, yeah but th- this was a common trope that was used in films and this girl suddenly dies. Ronald didn't mean to do it. And instead of, you know, calmly assessing the situation, he panics, buries her body, who knows where. And then he rushes home to tell his mother, Elaine, again, played by Kim Hunter, about what he has done. So Elaine, rather than, again, calmly trying to figure out what we need to do, she also panics and concocts this crazy plan for Ronald to hide in a secret part of the house, behind a wall. So that way, when the authorities eventually come looking for Ronald, and you know they're going to, they're not going to be able to find him. So this nutty plan works for a while before Elaine has to go to the doctor for what seems to be a relatively routine procedure. where We're never exactly told what's wrong with her. Is it a heart condition? Is it something else? But she fully expects to undergo the procedure and be able to return home. But that doesn't happen. She dies in the hospital. Ronald does not know this, and he actually wonders why she hasn't come home for several days. Then all of a sudden, some family is coming through looking at the house. And that's when Ronald realizes the house is being sold. There's going to be a new family there. Obviously, something has happened to his mother. And I think he overhears that conversation. Uh, Either I can't remember whether it's the family talking about the new family or somebody else. Mm
1: -hmm. But
0: he hears that, yeah, his mother died in the hospital, which he is shocked by. Now, this new family has a couple of young daughters, and that only leads to more inevitable trouble for Ronald. So I'd heard a lot of good things about the movie going in. But I do have to say, Tracy, I came away a little disappointed. Like a lot of the made for TV movies from the early 70s, Bad Ronald comes across pretty cheaply, kind of crude, very little atmosphere or visual appeal, certainly in contrast to something like. Dracula, that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to have sympathy for the character of Ronald. You know, here he is, a, a kid who was bullied. Um, when I was in school, I was bullied to a lesser extent. A lot of kids were. And it's, it's a tough thing to look at, especially when you've been through it yourself. Mm-hmm. So I wanted, to, I wanted to like Ronald, but he, he makes so many stupid decisions, like burying the girl and then going along with his mother's crazy plan. And then he's stalking one of the daughters from the new family that moves in. I mean, it's just one mistake after another, and the the, the decisions he makes are so stupid it it kind of defies belief. I mean, I guess there are some people that would do things <laughs> this stupid. I had hoped Ronald would be a little better than that. Yeah, I thought to myself, why didn't he just leave the house after he learned of his mother's death? Run away, head out of town, and try to get a fresh start somewhere else. Did he really think? He could continue to in, uh, live, you know, perpetually in this compartment, not a decent living place, tucked behind a, a secret wall. I mean, how long was this going to go on for? <laughs> so these were some of the problems uh, that I had with it. Um, I haven't heard your thoughts. I suspect you maybe like the movie a little <laughs> bit more. But what do you think? Uh, how would you characterize Bad Ronald?
1: Oh my goodness. So out of the three movies, Bruce, this, this is the, the first one that I watched out of the three. So I, I truly did not even know what to think. Um, it wasn't bad for a made for TV movie from back in the seventies. Um, I haven't seen a lot of made for TV movies from that era. Um, the storyline was intriguing. I, I feel like maybe I might have seen it or maybe I read a book or, you know, heard something of that nature i don't know it just something about it felt familiar um i mean i felt bad for the character ronald Wilby. um you just knew things weren't going to be going well for him um i feel like i don't know he had to tiptoe around his mother maybe a little bit Hmm. um she seemed a little off maybe. Um, She was kind of like dominating or just maybe overprotective, kind of like something like that. Um, I felt bad that the kid was bullied. But at the same time, it didn't really appear that it bothered him very much, I don't think. He kind of brushed it off until he came across this little sister of one of the Main people that were bullying him. And, you know, they had words and shouting. And, you know, when he pushes her, you know, things just kind of spiraled from there. Um, I agree. A lot of really unbelievable moments. I mean, the nosy neighbors, the bumbling police officers. Why did he try to cover up an accident? And, you know, just somebody wise, like the new family, like, how on earth did they not know that there was somebody in the walls right like I'm just like you know I know myself even if I hear like this weird noise in my house I'm like wait wait what's that right but they were hearing like glass breaking and they were just hearing weird noises just it was it was bizarre I just can't imagine yeah
0: Yeah, I mean, if he snored at night, that would have been a good (laughs) giveaway right there. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I have my share of criticism for the movie, as you do as well. (laughs) But I also want to point out Bad Ronald has some some good qualities. Mm -hmm. Not the character, but the movie. (laughs) The acting is pretty good. Uh, This Scott Jacoby, who I was really not familiar with, and has gone on to a pretty long career. He's not real famous, but... Uh, He did a good job as Ronald. I thought he played the character pretty solidly. Uh, Kim Hunter does a solidly good job as Elaine, the offbeat mother. Uh, She had a fine career, good reputation. It was also kind of fun to see Dabney Coleman, who's still alive, by the way. He's in his 90s. He's one of my favorite character actors ever. He, He can play comedic roles. He can play serious roles. He's the father of the family that moves into Ronald's house. And I would have loved to have seen him have a more significant role, um, but he's he's always been a, a favorite of mine. I guess ever since I saw him play that villainous boss in Nine to Five, the Dollar. Oh my Party. goodness! <laughs> and that's going back a ways. Um, so I would have liked to see more of Dabney Coleman, but yeah, it was it was fun to see him. In in this early 70s role before he really, I think, started to become very famous. Mm-hmm. I also have to admit, I love the scene where Ronald realizes that the jig is up. The family has discovered his presence. They know he's there. <laughs> and so he decides to crash through the wall and just scare the hell out of the kids living there. <laughs> that was quite a jump scare. I'm not sure what he was trying to accomplish with that, but it was kind of a funny moment. And yeah. again... Maybe not the best decision, <laughs> but it was kind of cool to see him, you know, crack through that fake wall without yes. injuring himself, <laughs> but scaring the absolute daylights out of the kids. And the kids were alone in the house that night because Dabney Coleman and his wife, they went out to dinner or something. So That's those two right. poor kids are there just, you know, what must have they have been thinking when they see Ronald crashing through the wall? <laughs> um, also, I'll say this. Bad Ronald is pretty daring for its time. It involves, yeah, a lot of disturbing behavior, but it also does give, at least at the beginning of the movie, a fairly serious examination of an issue like bullying. It also delves a little bit into a child who really has no friends. He is experiencing extreme loneliness. And then there's kind of the sub theme of stalking that we see toward the end of the movie. So, it does broach a few serious topics, uh, even though it doesn't go into depth, really, on any of them. All in all, I would look at this movie as a disappointing, but ultimately a decent movie with some good moments here and there. I'll give Bad Ronald two and a half stars. What's your rating for it, Tracy?
1: I I gave it a two. Um you know, I, I have to agree, you know, it tackled some pretty terrible issues, um, especially for back in the day. Like, that stuff wasn't really talked about or even acknowledged. Um, interestingly enough, like, I read a couple of articles over the last couple of days about this movie. And, you know, some of the reviewers were really interested in having this reinvented to see what it would be like today. Mm. Um an interesting thought. But, you know, I, I would give it a two for sure. And, you know, I also did a little bit of a a back check on Scott Jacoby, um, only because we were t- when we were talking about this movie with Donna Marie, um, we were not sure kind of where he was and what he was doing today. So what's really interesting, he had tons of roles right up until 1991, including playing Dorothy Sabornak's son on The Golden Girls, which I did not know. And today he is an accomplished musician. He's actually a Grammy Award winning writer, producer, and mixer. He has worked with such artists as John Legend, Coldplay, Kelly Clarkson, Macy Gray, and just so many others. So his career is booming in the music industry, which I think is a fascinating career change for him. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know any of that. Yeah. So he left Hollywood in early 90s and has done really well, even better since. Good for him.
1: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm always interested in kind of researching kind of like the where are they now and you know his story really surprised me it's he actually he's the the owner of ScoJack Music Productions Mm, is what it's called
0: yeah interesting let me pick up on one final point that you kind of hinted at maybe doing a remake of this I think this is a movie that would be ideal for a remake uh you look at special effects today uh putting this in maybe a larger mansion um, that has more secret panels, would, which would make it more believable, mm-hmm. um, updating some of the dialogue. I think this is a perfect film. I know made-for-TV movies aren't really a thing today they, the way they once were. You either have movies that go into theater or they're streaming. There's not a lot that go directly to network television. But if anybody ever thought about doing a remake of one of these made for TV films, I think this one makes perfect sense. I think it could really be improved with better sets, a better house, more visually striking. Uh, Again, update the dialogue, do all those things. Mm -hmm. I think it really could work.
1: I, I do, too. I think I think it's like a really cool story. And there is a lot that they could really do with it. And, you know. I I think if they happen to do that, I I would be on board for watching it, you know, they could even do direct to streaming or even make it really well done and pop it on at the theaters. I I think it would be interesting to see this again.
0: Yeah. Just don't change the title. The title is perfect. Bad Ronald. It is. I think that draws (laughs) people in. One of my good friends is named Ron and I've nicknamed him Bad Ronald, which he hates. (laughs) But hey sorry, it's, it's just too good to pass up. So. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So those are our thoughts on the films. Uh, again, to recap for Bad Ronald, uh, I gave it two and a half stars. Tracy went with two stars. We talked about Sugar Hill, the uh, black exploitation film starring Marky Bay. I went with three stars. Tracy went with two and a half. And then the one that we talked about toward the top of the show, Jack Palance in 1974 Dracula, we both gave it three and a half stars. And, and really of the three, that's the standout and one that if you have not seen, you should try to make an effort to do so. It is available on Tubi and I believe some other streaming sources. And it's one that gets a fairly regular airplay on uh, various uh, TV channels. Uh, I think it's been on Turner Classic in the past. And it's been on uh, some other mainstream locations as well. Well, Tracy, thank you very much for your uh, thoughts on the movies over this past hour. As always, appreciated. Thanks for being with us.
1: Well, thank you. This has been interesting. And I'll tell you, Bruce, keep those movie recommendations coming. I'm exploring so many new things I've never watched before.
0: (laughs) Some good ones, some not as good. You can blame me for the latter. (laughs) For Tracy Asteria, I'm Bruce Markison. We uh, are very thankful that you have joined us for this edition of our Ghostly Gallery podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us in this Museum of the Macabre, and we hope that you'll be with us for the next edition. Join us right here in the Ghostly Gallery.